Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. I got to tell you, I love this day. I love it for so many reasons. Uh, uh, one of them is because my mom always gets me the C's candy Easter egg. And so I can always count on that, uh, that that's going to come to me, even with my mom in Ireland right now visiting you know, one of the homelands, I guess. Uh, even with her there, uh, I still got the Easter leg. I love uh, Easter. I love the peeps, right? Anybody a fan of peeps, right? You're like, yes, let's eat those nasty things and suffer for a week. But the main reason I love Easter is why we're here today and what we're talking about today. And the reality is, there is no guessing about what I'm going to talk about right now, right? There's none of us who are sitting here who are saying, I think we're okay there. Thanks, guys, for jumping in. There's none of us who are sitting here saying, oh, we don't know what's going to be talked about. We know what we're talking about. But this is great because this is literally the greatest day in history, which leads me to ask a question that, at, uh, that all of us at some point need to ask this question, if, especially if you've never asked this question before. And if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, it's a question worth revisiting from time to time. And Easter points to the question, who is Jesus? Who, excuse me, who is Jesus? And more specifically, who is Jesus to you personally? On Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. And it's the resurrection that convinced Jesus' first followers that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was God in a body. Listen to this. It wasn't Jesus' teachings that convinced him them. It wasn't his miracles that convinced them. It was his resurrection that convinced his followers, and it's been convincing people ever since. Now, if this is your first time here with us today, uh, there's something I want you to know. Many of us, maybe most of us, but those of us who've thought about this, many of us, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead just because the Bible says it. Well, that's not why. It's way better than that. It's way more substantial than that. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because of a bunch of his first century followers of Jesus. They heard, they saw him, they heard it, they witnessed it, and then they recorded it. For example, we believe because there was a guy, a follower of Jesus named Matthew, who documented the life of Jesus. And he also was a witness to and documented the resurrection. We also believe because a man named Mark documented what the apostle Peter said. Peter was an eyewitness. Peter saw Jesus dead, and then he saw him alive. We also believe because there was a doctor named Luke. And Luke was a person who traveled around the area of, of Israel, of Judea, and he traveled also around the world with the apostle Paul. And Luke met enough people who had seen the resurrected Jesus that he concluded Jesus was alive. And so he write, wrote about it, and that eventually became the Gospel of Luke. And my favorite example of a reason, that we, one of the reasons we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, is Jesus' brother James. Because James eventually concluded that his brother was his Lord and Savior. I want you to seriously think about this. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was your Lord and Savior? I mean, really, I mean, I love my brother. I love him to death, but I guarantee you I would never make him my Lord and Savior, ever. 
Now, uh, Jesus, or I should say James, he didn't follow Jesus' brother. He didn't follow Jesus around when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He wasn't into the messages and the sermons. He wasn't into to the, you know, the, the miracles or the signs. But James, the brother of Jesus, saw his crucified brother raised from the dead, and then he decided to believe then that Jesus was going to be indeed his Savior, his Messiah. One more reason that we believe there was a man named Saul or Paul, and he stepped onto the pages of history as somebody who was intent on eventually a, a church was formed. And this church, he was, he was bent and insisted on destroying it and eliminating it from the earth. And he concluded that Jesus was, in fact, his Messiah because he had a personal encounter with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. All of these men, they documented what they saw. They documented what they heard. They documented what they heard from others who saw a resurrected Jesus. And here's where the, the Bible comes in. All those documents, they were collected. Many, many, many years later, they were combined and eventually put into a volume that we call the Bible. But long before there was a Bible, there were all of these eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And there were the friends of the eyewitnesses. And they all say that they saw or they knew somebody who saw a resurrected Jesus. See, the reality is the story of Jesus wasn't worth telling or documenting if there was no resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another wannabe Messiah who was executed by Rome. In fact, uh, we would probably hardly even know his name. For example, I'm curious, do you know any of these people? Moses of Crete, David Alroy, Shabbatai Zevi, Rabbi Menachem, Mendel Schneerson, Maybe if you're a student of history or Israeli history, maybe you've heard of Simon Bar Kokhba. They were all wannabe messiahs of Israel, who all, by the way, stayed dead. Again, without the resurrection, Jesus would be just another name like these guys on a page in, in history or in Jewish history. Here's what's interesting to me about those who documented what they saw. In fact, I would argue it's one, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we can take what they said seriously. These followers of Jesus, when they told the stories, they didn't write themselves into the stories as amazing people full of faith. They didn't write themselves into the stories as heroes. In fact, what they did is they, they described themselves as doubters. Why would they do that? Why would they not make a compelling reason for us to believe why would they describe themselves as doubters? Well, it's simple. They were. They were just telling the truth. We were doubters. They expected Jesus to do what all people do once they die, and that's stay dead. Nobody expect, expected no body. Nobody was out standing outside the tomb on Sunday morning going, you know, countdown, 10, 9, 8. No one was doing that. Why? Because they figured Jesus had fooled them. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior. And of course, if you're the Savior of, Rome, of Israel, you're not going to be executed by Rome. So the followers of Jesus, they felt duped. 
They felt lied to, like the wool was pulled over their eyes. There is, a, excuse me, there is another man who is a witness to both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. His name is John. We've been looking at his account the last five weeks in the series we've been in, which is really culminating today. And like others, John didn't see a crucifixion coming with Jesus. He definitely didn't see a resurrection coming. Do you know what he expected? He expected, like others, that Jesus was going to be that conquering king who came to save Israel. John tells us something, and, and we're going to be together looking through some of this story. If you want to go on your phones uh, to the Version Bible app, we don't have notes this week on Easter, but, but you can go on your phone to the Version Bible app. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 19 to start with. We're going to get into John 19, 20 and continue on. So we're going to be in John 19 to start with. And John tells us something. He says, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in a city about two miles away from Jerusalem, a whole bunch of people believed in Jesus. How could you not? He just did something that only God could have done. The religious leaders, they go crazy. They go nuts over what Jesus has done. And they say in John 11, verse 47, they say, here is this man who's performing many signs. Everybody say signs. Many signs, because again, that's what John has been talking about. If you've been with us, that's, John was trying to talk about all these signs, what we might call miracles, but John said they're signs. And so even they said, hey, he's performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So these religious leaders, they weren't a fan of Jesus, and they decided, hey, since Jesus is here in Jerusalem for Passover, and Jerusalem's packed, well, this is going to be a great opportunity with so many people around. When we can get them away from the crowds, we can take them out. Jesus was with his disciples there in, in Jerusalem for Passover. What's Passover? Passover was a reminder to the Jewish people that God saved the nation of Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And the Jewish people believed a day was coming, that one Passover, one day would come, where God would again save the Jewish people. And the people at that time were hoping that Passover was going to happen in their lifetime, and they would save them from the bondage of Rome. A lot of people thought Jesus was that person that God sent to save them. And as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, hundreds if not thousands of people declare Jesus as Lord and King. Jesus uh, goes into the temple and he spends time preaching and teaching and the spies, they're everywhere looking for the opportunity to take Jesus out. One of Jesus' disciples loses patience with Jesus and kind of the speed at which Jesus was going to make himself king. And he said, hey, maybe what I could do is get Jesus isolated. He goes to these religious leaders and he's thinking I can get Jesus isolated with them. They can arrest him and then Jesus will rise up and be king. And so, so he goes to these religious leaders. He cuts a deal with them on how they could get Jesus isolated. And now we get to the last part of the week and Jesus is celebrating his final Passover meal with his 12 disciples. During that meal, Jesus announces, hey, I have a new covenant. And, and for these 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, they've grown up their whole lives listening to the Torah, listening to the prophets, listening to someone like Jeremiah who said one day God would give them a new covenant. And here Jesus is talking about this new covenant. And, and Jesus is saying, now is the time. And so they're all thinking, 
this is awesome. This is incredible. It's go time. It's Messiah time. It's kick Rome's butt time. And so they're excited about this. And Jesus goes on and says about this new covenant. Jesus said he's going to establish it in his blood. And his disciples are like, yes, blood, sweat, and tears. Let's go. We're going to fight. We're going to win. We're going to be victorious in this. You're our mighty king. We're with you. We will fight. And then Jesus said, but let me tell you about this new command, this new covenant. It has one simple command. And the command is simply this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love the world in that way. And Jesus had just washed their feet and demonstrated that his love was the love of serving other people. But then what was to come in the next day or so, Jesus was going to demonstrate what that love really looked like when he would go to the cross. But clearly they thought he was about to declare himself king, but Jesus had bigger plans, bigger plans for them than just taking on Rome. And he had bigger plans for all of us who are here today. After that last supper, uh, the, the disciples with Jesus get together. They walk one mile to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there in the garden that, that Judas betrays Jesus. The soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. He's then taken by the soldiers to walk back by the, the, um, the upper room. So they walk that mile. And then they walked an additional mile to the high priest house where Jesus was falsely accused by a bunch of false witnesses and other religious leaders. Jesus is even beaten there. Jesus is then taken another 1.3 or 1.8 miles, depending on the scholars have different interpretations of where Pilate's uh, residence was, but it was either 1.3 or 1.8 mile walk where they went to Pilate, the governor. They went to him because they knew they, the Jewish people, couldn't execute somebody. You needed the governor to authorize that, and they wanted Jesus gone, executed quickly. Pilate talks to Jesus, and he tells these religious leaders and a crowd who had gathered, he says, I can't find anything wrong with this man. There are no charges that you've brought me that are worthy of death. But they say, no, 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 he must die. Pilate decides this, you know what? I'm going to have Jesus beat within an inch of his life. And when they see that and what I've done to them, perhaps that'll cause them to calm down and they'll change their minds and they're not going to like push me to execute them. So Pilate has Jesus flogged, beaten to within an inch of his life. He's hoping the crowd will be merciful. But they say, no, 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 no. Jesus claims to be the son of God. He must die. He claims to be our king. He's not our king. He must die. And then they said, Pilate, if you're a friend of Caesar's, and, and the goal of any governor was to be a friend of Caesar's to keep the peace, they said, if you're a friend of Caesar's, you cannot allow this man to live. And in John chapter 19, verse 16, we discover Pilate gives in. The soldiers take charge of Jesus, and they take, have Jesus carry his own cross to an execution site called the skull. John tells us four simple words. John chapter 19, verse 18. There they crucified him. There's no other details given about the crucifixion because no other details are necessary. Everybody knew what a crucifixion was. Everybody knew how brutal it was. 
And John goes on and he records the words of Jesus on the cross. And John gives us one particular detail that doesn't really make sense. John, why do you even include this in the story? It doesn't make sense to include it in this giant narrative. There's only one reason to include it. It must be true. Jesus said to John in John chapter 19, verse 26, he said, John, uh, Mary, my mom, she's now your mother. And Mary, John, he's now your son. It was Jesus' way of saying to John, John, I want you to take care of my mom. It's an obscure detail. Why mention it? It's only worth mentioning if it was true. John then heard Jesus utter his last words when Jesus said in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And then he said, I watched as Jesus bowed his head and he died. And then John does something very unusual. It's as if John reaches through the pages of history, and I don't want you to miss this. He reaches through the pages of history, and he's grabbing each and every one of your shoulders right now. And he's, look, he's going through the pages of history. He's saying, can I have your attention? And he's looking you in the eye, and he says this in John 19, verse 35. And John, in his narrative, always describes himself in the third person. Okay? And so he says this, the man, meaning himself, who saw it has given testimony. In other words, I was an eyewitness. And he said, and he's looking at us, and he says, my testimony is true. I tell you the truth. And I testify so that, and he's saying, I'm sharing this because I want you to see what I see because I've seen signs, I've seen wonders, and they're pointing to somebody. He says, I want you to see what I see. And he says, my testimony is true, and I testify, and I want you to see this, he says, so that you also may believe. Everybody say believe. That's what he wants for us. Do you see what I see? Do you see the signs? Do you see the wonders? They point to somebody specifically, and that's to Jesus. John then goes on to tell us what happened because he was there, because he saw it, and he wants us to see it. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what he talked about. And he goes on in John 19, verse 38, and he tells us later on, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was actually a religious leader, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Why did he ask for it? Because crucified bodies were always taken out to the trash heap, to the dump. It was called Gehenna. And so with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And and John says there's another man with him. His name was Nicodemus. And and some of you, if you've read the Bible or read the accounts, you might know the story of Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night, and and, and he talked to Jesus, and Jesus had a conversation. And and, and Jesus told Nicodemus, you got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so you have Joseph, and you have Nicodemus, and they take the body of Jesus. and, and, And they take it away. And, they, and the Bible tells us is that they, they took spices and, and they took this mixture and, and it was about 75 pounds worth because they were getting ready to embalm the body of Jesus and prepare the body of Jesus. Why would they do that? Well, because they expected Jesus to do what everybody else did once they died, stay dead. That's what they expected. 
And so in John chapter 19, verse 40, they took Jesus' body and they, the two of them, they wrapped it up with spices and in strips of linen. And it was according to Jewish customs. And John told us that because he wants us to understand, hey, we were trying to do the right, they were trying to do the right thing. And then in John 19, verse 41, it says this, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, no one had been laid there. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, that's the Sabbath, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This was John's way of saying, hey, these guys were in a hurry. The sun was about to set. And once that happened, it means Sabbath began. And once that happened, once Sabbath began, you could no longer work. It was unlawful to work on the Sabbath. And so they quickly prepared Jesus' body for burial, did the best they could. They put it in the tomb, rolled the stone over the tomb, and they left. We don't know what Peter and John and the other disciples did that night after Jesus had been crucified. We don't know what they talked about. We, I can imagine they, they wondered and thought to themselves, the last three years of our life following this person, Jesus, has been a total waste. Because they were convinced Jesus was who he claimed to be. And the fact that he was arrested so quickly and crucified so quickly, they were just trying to catch up emotionally. We don't know what they did that night. We don't know what they did Saturday. But what we know is that the Bible tells us, John tells us early Sunday morning, they hear it banging on their door. And it can't be soldiers. They were afraid of the soldiers. It can't be soldiers because soldiers don't knock, right? They just come in. And they go and check, and it was Mary Magdalene, who was one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She was so grateful to Jesus. Jesus had elevated the dignity of women, had elevated the dignity of children, and elevated the dignity of all people. And she's crushed, and she's heartbroken that Jesus has been crucified. And she's banging on the door, and they open the door, and she's sobbing, and she's panicking, and they can barely understand what she says. And she says to them in John 20, verse 2, they say, she says, they've taken him. They've taken Jesus, our Lord, out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. See, she assumed what anybody would assume. None of them believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. She had looked into the tomb, and she assumed that, that, that you know, he, uh, somebody had to have taken him. That's the only explanation. Somebody took him. Then the next verse says this, and this is, again, John writing all of this, sharing his story. He says, so Peter and the other disciple, that's John, they started for the tomb. John chapter 20, verse 4. It's actually one of my favorite funny verses in the Bible. Both were running, but the other disciple, John's talking about himself, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John's like, people need to know I'm faster than Peter. Peter's a terrible fisherman and I'm faster than him, right? He's like, everybody needs to know this. John says when he got to the tomb, he says, I bent over and I looked at the strips of linen lying there, but I did not go in. It's dark. It's a tomb. I'm not going in that spot. Eventually, his friend Simon Peter shows up, and he went straight into the tomb, John said. Why did Peter go straight into the tomb? Because he's Peter, right? That's what Peter does. Peter doesn't mess around. He doesn't wait around for others. Of course, he goes straight in. And John says this. He says, we saw the strangest thing. We saw something that we didn't expect to see. We saw something, and in that moment, it convinced us that the world had changed. Our world had changed. The world for eternity had changed. And he said this, John chapter 20, verse 6, he said, We saw the strips of linen lying there. 
while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head, it was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. In other words, it wasn't a rush job. This was, everything wasn't a mess. Thieves wouldn't come in and try to disembalm or unembalm or whatever the body and then, hey, let's take the time to fold up the linen. Thieves wouldn't do that. By the way, this is interesting. It was a Jewish custom or tradition that a, a wadded up or just like disheveled linen that was left on the table for the servants that meant to the servant who was taking care of somebody who's having a meal, that meant that the person who was eating was finished. But a linen that had been folded up would tell the servant, I am coming back. That's interesting because what did Jesus say in John chapter 14? He told his disciples, I'm going away, but I will come back to you. And then John gives us his formula. Here's his equation. Here's his formula that he shared throughout his gospel. It's the formula he wants to leave you and I with, any of us who will listen to the story or read the story, because it takes us to the very epicenter of the Christian faith. And John said this. He's speaking out of himself. In John chapter 20, verse 8, four simple words. He said, he, it says this, he saw. And when John saw, he put two and two together. He put everything together in his mind that had happened. And it says this, he saw and he believed. When he saw, he believed. Do you see what I see, John says? When he saw, he believed. And his world changed. Why? Because this resurrection of Jesus reframed his entire life. Suddenly it dawned on him. Everything that Jesus said was true. Everything that Jesus said about the Father was true. In that moment, it dawned upon John. He doesn't yet know where Jesus is at the moment, but it dawns on him. Clearly, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he will come back. Remember, the, the linen folded up. That means, I will come back. John realizes, I saw him crucified. Saw him died. So I'm laid in a tomb. I saw it all. And then I saw the tomb empty. And I believed Jesus is risen. And John realizes, oh my goodness, the God of ages has stepped into his world, to our world, to have his glory take on our sin and our shame. And John said, his message, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And, and the Word, John says, don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. But the Word was God. The Word was with God. And it came, the Word came and lived with us and became flesh. John says the best way I can describe it is light came into the world. And on Easter morning, John says, I recognize that he had risen. And it all came together for me. John, Peter, and all the others, they would eventually see Jesus risen. They'd have conversations with Jesus. And John records some of those conversations for us. But as we get ready to wrap it up, I want to focus on one of those conversations that John recorded. John gives us an encounter that Jesus has with one of his disciples the first time he has an encounter with them after Jesus was resurrected. And it says this in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, Thomas, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first came. And he wasn't with them because a lot of the disciples, they had scattered once Jesus died because they were like, hey, this movement's over. It's all done and I'm done. And, and they went to Thomas, and they told Thomas, they said this, we have seen the Lord. 
The Lord is alive. Now, I want you to think from Thomas's perspective. Thomas has felt like he just spent three years of his life chasing a false messiah. And there is no way he's going to spend the rest of his life now trying to chase some type of ghost or rumor. He tells him in John chapter 20, verse 25, he says, Look, fellas, there is no way I'm going to believe unless I see. I need to see the nail marks in his hands. I need to see the hole in his side where that sword went through that I witnessed and saw. I need to put my hands into his side and into his, into his hands. He says, I love you guys, but I'm not dedicating the rest of my life talking about a dead man who came back to life unless I see it. Verse 26, a week later, they're all together again, and now this time Thomas is with them. And John says this. He's like, listen, guys, I'm telling you, this is how it happened. He says, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And, of course, he said that because they must have been frightened in the moment. And then Jesus looks at Thomas, and he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas, hey, put your fingers right here. Put your fingers right here. Hey, give me your hand. Put your finger, your hand right here. And then he says this to Thomas, and I love the literal translation in the Greek. John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. John included this little piece of the narrative because, again, it goes back to John's central theme. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Do you see what I see? And when Thomas saw, he said, my Lord, oh my goodness, my God. And then Jesus told Thomas, hey, I understand. I get it why you didn't believe. Thomas, seriously, bro, you're just like the rest of these guys in this room. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas. They didn't believe either until they saw me. Don't let them trick you. All of them doubted until they saw me. At that moment, Jesus leaves his immediate context. And knowing that this story, John would tell this story, and it would go out for generation upon generation upon generation. And John said something to those who were gathered there, but what, John, or what Jesus was really saying is, I'm giving you something. So Jesus is now speaking to us. He's in that room with Thomas and the others who have seen. But now Jesus turns to you and I, and Jesus says to us, John chapter 29, uh, verse 29, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. John, uh, blessed are the people that read your account and believe. Matthew, blessed are those who read your account and believe. Peter, blessed are those who read your account that you'll share through John or through Mark and believe. Blessed are all those in future generations who hear and accept the testimony of those who saw. John closes with an invitation, and it's an invitation we're giving you today. His invitation is simple. It was throughout his gospel. And John said, my testimony is true. And once you're convinced 
of what I was convinced of, then your life can change as well. Here's how John said it. We wrap it up just where we started six weeks ago for those who were with us. John said in John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed a whole lot more signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't even recorded in this letter that I wrote. There's so much I could have talked about, but I selected all of these specific signs. I've told these stories that to you that were true. He said, I, sh- I wrote these. These are written not so that you just know what happened. They're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John says, do you see what I see? Do you see the Messiah? Because when you see the Messiah and believe that he is the Messiah, John then said, and when you believe, you'll have life in his name. John said, I want you to see it and trust it and believe it. And when you believe, you will have life, eternal life, everlasting life. He says, I'll tell you why you can believe with confidence. John had told us there, was the, there came a morning that sealed, that punctuated, that authenticated the promise. Then it came that morning and his body in that tomb began to breathe. And out of the silence of that tomb, the silence that we thought would be forever, out of that silence, it came this roaring lion who said, the grave has no claim on me. After being with Jesus, John concluded, God so loved the world, all of us, that he gave us his son. And if you would believe, you wouldn't die. You wouldn't be separated from God. You would not perish eternally. But John said, you'll have everlasting life. And that's the gift. That's the invitation your heavenly father has for you today. And our hope today is that it becomes personal for you. If you're a Christ follower, remembering the story, never losing sight of what your whole life is about. It's about this day and what Jesus did. And having the confidence, knowing your faith is based on the eyewitness accounts of those who saw and witnessed it. But for some of you, today's the day God's calling you. He's giving you an opportunity to believe today. Would you take the step? Would you believe? Would you give your life to Jesus? He said, I'll come in and I'll give you life, life everlasting. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.